Please be seated. I invite you to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you'll endure a lengthy story here, I think will be serviceable to us. Imagine an invading army that storms the castle gates of an ancient kingdom. With murderous zeal, the raiding army pillages and torches the city. In the mayhem, the infant son of the king is captured and transported to the enemy city where he is enslaved to the ruthless warden of the dungeon. From his earliest memories, the captured prince is mistreated and abused. The only life he knows is that of a tortured slave whose days are spent working in the damp, dingy, unsanitary confines of the dungeon. He is denied proper food, shelter, and clothing and never permitted to take a bath. The prisoners he serves mistreat him. The warden routinely beats him and brainwashes him to believe that all his troubles are owing to the king who is actually his father. His soul shrinks and his heart grows dark with bitter hatred and pride. Early one winter morning, he is startled to hear shouts of panic in the streets. And unbeknownst to him, his father's army has mounted a successful attack against the city where he is enslaved. As the defending army is subdued, all the boys of a certain age range are lined up against the city wall. And the prince, who has no idea he is a prince, stands in the frigid air shaking, half naked, and filled with hatred toward this conquering king. His body, look at him, it's covered from head to toe in grime. His hair is long and matted and snarled. He hardly looks human. His nails are grotesquely long, his lips cracked and his feet bleeding. He nurses open infected wounds. He's repulsive. He's emaciated. As he stands in line, a soldier approaches, grabs the boy's wrists, and looks at his forearm where is revealed a distinctive birthmark. This is him, yells the soldier to the king who watches intently on horseback. The boy is stunned to see this king's soldiers drop to one knee and bow their heads before him in homage. The king dismounts and approaches. He opens wide his arms and with tears in his eyes and a gentle smile on his face, he embraces this vile urchin of a boy. And he says in his ear, Welcome home, son. Welcome home. Covering the boy with his cloak, the king tells his son who he really is. And inexplicably, there is a love for the king that bursts from this young boy's soul. While he struggles to understand all that has happened, he realizes that nothing will ever be the same again. He's brought back to his father's castle. And as we see them heading back there, we know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to bring this boy into shape. A lot of work. Now think of it, some of this work is going to be immediate. He's going to receive a hot, long bath. He's going to get a haircut. There are wounds that must be treated and dressed. There will be balm that is put upon his cracked lips and his hands and his feet. And he will be fitted with warm and luxurious clothes for the first time in his life. But there's other works that are going to take place here over a much longer period of time. He will need to be brought back into a healthy diet and to gain weight. There will need to be a regimen of exercise that will allow him to build up his strength. He'll learn to read, as all princes do, and to ride a horse, and to wield a sword. It's going to take some time. He'll learn a whole litany of social graces and chivalrous manners befitting the prince that he is. The boy has been liberated from bondage. He has returned to his loving father's realm. He is a prince with a high calling. But he's a prince with an immense amount of physical improvement and learning and retraining and spiritual healing that's going to have to take place over a long period of time. He is the crown prince, even as he travels back in this horrifying condition. 
but it will take some doing for him to conform to his high calling. Now, it doesn't take a lot to fill in the pieces for those of us who know Christ as our Savior. As Christians, we're in very much of a similar position, aren't we? Thinking on this series of sermons, and as we have shared various pictures of it very similar to this, we were born in bondage to sin. We were liberated by Jesus who came to seek and to save repentant sinners. This liberation so radical that we can only say it, that we have died to our sin and risen with Christ. We're a new person. We're not who we once were. Dead to sin, risen with Christ to new life. We are now children of the King. Our inheritance is settled in heaven by God for eternity if we truly know Him as Savior. But Christian, there's a lot of work to do, isn't there? There's a lot of work to be done. We have a lot of changing to do to become the people that we are in our position in Christ. This moral cleaning up process is what theologians refer to as sanctification, or being made holy. And it is to this endeavor that the Apostle Peter calls believers in his first epistle here, as we've read it earlier this morning. For sake of time, we'll jump into the middle of this discussion, pulling out this theme, and then I want to springboard from there to consider further the concept of sanctification in the life of the believer. We find in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14 these familiar words, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It should make sense to us. In our unregenerate state, we lived in obedience to fleshly cravings and in ignorance of God's wisdom. But God rescued us from our ignorance with every intention that we would obey Him and be conformed to Him, not to the fleshly passions that ruled us in our unregenerate state. In contrast to that sinful way of life, verse 15, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The but there marks a strong contrast with verse 14. You once lived under the bondage of your passions as unbelievers, but you have been called to a whole new life, a life of holiness and sanctification. Now this really takes us back to what? It really takes us back to creation itself. We were created in the image of God. Now sin has distorted and twisted that image horribly. Now if we look at it in a different sense, all sinners are dead in trespasses and sins. But to look at it truly from being made in the image of God, every sinner indeed bears that image. It's just so twisted and horribly disfigured. Instead of serving as God's image in this world, we took our inborn capacities as kingdom builders, constructing our own little kingdoms in self-promoting, simultaneously self-destructive ways. But God's grand scheme of salvation operates to restore His image in His people for His glory and for their joy. This is why He saves people. Those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins are saved then to become holy people like God. Now remember Romans 6 that we've looked at in the last couple of weeks. Verse 1, verse 15. Are we then to go on sinning so that grace may increase? Are we to go on living in sin knowing that God has fully forgiven me? I've got nothing to worry about. That's indeed the case. We have nothing to worry about if we truly know Him as Savior. We have been fully forgiven. All sins washed clean and our full standing secured for us in eternity. Well, why don't we then just go on and sin? No, says the Apostle, you'll remember. God did not save us so that we continue conforming our lives to the pattern of this world. Or to what Peter calls in chapter 2, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Going back to our story, the king did not save his son so that he could continue living in the dungeon. It makes utterly no sense. Being delivered from the dungeon of sin is itself a call to cleanse our lives from every vestige of that old way of living. The point is not be holy because God has a gun to your head and wants you to be miserable. 
That He just designs laws and rules that mean to make you miserable because He's bigger than you are and knows how to do it. No, the point is be holy because God has saved you from your sin in order to restore His holy nature in you. You're His project and He's working. Cooperate with Him. You are dead now to sin and alive to God, living like this is the case, is the call to holiness and sanctification. So in the time that remains, I'd like to labor then to deepen and bolster our understanding of sanctification, that we might find fresh motivation to pursue it with renewed vigor. Let's consider then several propositions, which I'm doing things with these statements, to try to steer us and lead us. We won't go into all of the details of it, but I believe that these are right and proper propositions, though some will indeed differ. But the first point is this, that sanctification is progressive transformational conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is progressive transformational conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Now where do we get this idea? The idea of sanctification really drawn from uh, both Testaments and we can find specific words on which this is all based, although the concept is much larger than the words. But in the Old Testament we have the Hebrew word kadosh. And that idea of kadosh or holiness draws to our attention the concept of two realms. There is, on the one hand, the secular realm. Not taken in the sense of anything wrong with it, but it's just the mundane, or we might use the word in an amoral sense, of the profane world. But there is another circle of influence known as the sacred realm. In the sacred realm, there are certain things that are dedicated to that realm. Kadosh indicates that. They are holy things. We would put in this sacred realm even physical things such as the tabernacle or sacrifices. Oh, a slab of meat isn't holy in a moral sense. But it is used there to be eaten by those who worship, but it's dedicated uniquely to the service of God, and so it is holy meat. There are holy utensils, bowls and forks and the like that the priests use. And you remember the turban on the head of the high priest, which indicated this very idea that he was himself uniquely dedicated to the purposes of God. For the Hebrew scholars among us, reading from right to left, we have the word kadosh, holy, consecrated, distinctive, set apart to the service of God. Kadosh. Le Yahweh, holy to Yahweh, to God. Now, this high priest wore this band on his head all the time as he served in the worship of the tabernacle. But it was not only the high priest who was holy to God. In some similar sense, the entire nation was holy to God, weren't they? God had chosen the Israelites to be a people consecrated to Him distinctive to Him. Israel consecrated to the service and worship of God who was Himself holy, holy, holy. As Isaiah's vision is recorded for us. God then unique. Therefore the nation unique and dedicated and consecrated to His worship and to His service. Now in the New Testament we find three other Greek words, hagios, hieros, and hasios, related terms which are translated by some form of the English holy or consecrated or saints or sanctify. Sanctification is this idea of holiness, consecration uniquely to God. Now as we work this out, particularly in the New Testament, we find that sanctification is transformational conformity to the image of Jesus Christ and plays out in two particular ways in these first two sub-points here. The first is what is referred to as positional or definitive sanctification. This speaks of our sanctification or of our salvation at which time we receive as an act of God's grace an immediate permanent standing in sanctification. For time and eternity, we are holy ones. We are sanctified unto God. We will never be anything else. We have this position in Christ. Take the prince again. On the day that he was rescued, he was permanently placed under the realm of his father and given over for the rest of his life 
as a prince. That's who he is now. He's in that position and in that standing. Does that mean nothing will ever change? No. Get to that in a moment. But just to draw from several texts that indicate this idea that sanctification is a done deal. Hebrews 10 and verse 10, we have been sanctified. Past tense. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, but you were sanctified as he speaks to the Corinthians having lived a debauched life, but they have been sanctified, cleansed, washed, turned over in consecration to God. Acts 20 and verse 32, believers are referred to there as to those who are sanctified. But there's a second aspect, that's our standing, that's our position. But the second aspect is a progressive idea. Not only is our prince given now the status and the standing of prince, but there's also a process that's involved in conforming to who he is. And this is the idea of progressive sanctification. The New Testament uses this word to describe a lifelong process of becoming holy. 1 Peter 1, verse 15 through 16, we've just read that. But be holy, for I am holy. There's a, a moral call there. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion is this idea of progressive change, of being sanctified, becoming who we are in Christ. This completion will ultimately not take place until our bodies are redeemed. But in this life, it is an ongoing process. As 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reminds us again, may God sanctify you completely. This is a desire on Paul's part. In, in a sense, a prayer to God that people would be fully sanctified. So it is an ongoing process in this life. Now this third point is not actually ideally parallel to the first two. There's two concepts, positional sanctification, progressive sanctification. But I'd like to add this thought here because I think it's important. Many would agree with these first two ideas that would have less interest in the third. But this, I think, too, is described in Scripture. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, which speaks of the fact that sanctification is transformative. That is, it changes us. It changes us into people of active obedience in this life. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Notice that idea of being transformed into an image. We're being changed into something that we aren't fully yet at this point. Colossians 3 and verse 9. With that thought in mind, look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9. Here we read, do not lie to one another, very practical application, sanctified tongues is part of the issue. Remember Romans 6, all of our body parts turned over to God, that includes what we say with our mouth. So verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, there's that old man, is, is the uh, Greek text, with its practices, that's the old person that you were under the bondage of sin. You put off that, and verse 10, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Notice, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So the concept of sanctification is certainly broader than the use of the actual term, but in the big picture, it is the process whereby the image of God is restored in us. That image is twisted and deformed because of sin, but God saves people in order to bring us back to reveal the image of God. Since Jesus epitomizes that image, indeed is that image, it follows then that sanctification is conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to be careful at that point. When we start to talk about being conformed into the likeness of Christ, we tend to think of Jesus as just other than us. 
And, and, and I really can't be conformed into his life. I look at all kinds of things that I do in life, and I say, Jesus would never do that. We kind of tail off there and sort of miss the project because we believe that Jesus would never read a newspaper. Jesus would never watch television. Jesus would never mow the lawn. Jesus would never do all kinds of things that we do. And so some places I'll be like Jesus, but other places has nothing to do with me. And it almost comes off as in the sense that when we go to heaven, we're going to all look exactly like Jesus. And we'll all just have name tags. It's the only thing that will distinguish us. We'll all look just like he is. No, it's not the case at all, is it? Every indication that we have is when we enter into eternity, people will know who we are. We will be us. We will be different. Yeah, of course, Jesus did things we're never going to do, and we do things Jesus never did. There's no question about that. But what is it? It's His nature. It's His character. It's the image of God that Jesus reflected to us. It's that that we're being conformed to be. And in that sense, we should be exactly like Jesus. We should have no other goal We should give ourselves no other room but to know that in His grace He is bringing us to be like the nature of Jesus Christ in His character. So the Christian life is a process of becoming the saints that we are positionally. Becoming one wholly consecrated to God in union with Jesus Christ. Or to say it more pointedly, sanctification is the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit who mediates the presence of Jesus to believers and thus cleanses us from sin, setting us apart from the world and purifying our souls in distinctive worship and service to God. We are united with Christ and in that union with Jesus Christ, witnessing His presence as the Holy Spirit does, witnessing that presence, we reflect the nature and the character of Jesus Christ progressively through our lives as believers. Now, that's going to mean that we will think about sin in different ways than this world thinks about sin. And we're going to think about sin indeed in ways that we didn't think about it before. Even as Christians, we will grow in our understanding of what it is. We will crush the desires of sin in our hearts. We will increasingly find in God our soul's delight and joy. We will long to be like Christ. We will increasingly labor for the glory of God with a God-centered orientation of life. J.I. Packer says, those who think of God as existing for their benefit rather than of themselves as existing for His praise do not qualify as holy men and women. We are fully consecrated to God alone. And it is his, the image of Christ that is being worked out in us. This is the project. This is the agenda. Why would we want any other agenda? For his part, God will continue laboring to conform us to the image of Christ. Remember Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. A very familiar passage to us, but let's consider it in this light. Romans 8 and verse 28 we learn that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. God promises here that all things will work to our good. Does that mean I'm going to be healthy, wealthy, everything go well, famous, easy life? Is that how He works things together for good? What's the point, verse 29? We know this. But it is for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. There it is again. This conforming to the image of Christ in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That He would be the first one to go before us and we would follow in His train to become the people that we are to be. Now how did Jesus make this progress as a man? The author of Hebrews says, through the things he suffered. So God is saying, I'm going to conform you into the image and the likeness of Jesus who learned obedience to his Father through the things that he suffered. I'll give you just a little bit of a tip-off that God has some suffering in our future, doesn't it? It has to be. God makes no claim to busy himself to create a people who have an inside track on health, wealth, fame, and ease. He utilizes the circumstances and the experiences of our lives, many of them painful, many of them inexplicable, 
to conform us to the image of Jesus, to the glory of God, and to the joy of our own souls. This takes time. It's not easy. But it's what God is doing out of love for us. We don't understand how twisted is the image of God in us. But through His grace and His mercy, all circumstances work to conform His people into the likeness of His Son. Now, this may mean little to most, and perhaps that's good, but for some who understand what I mean, let me say here, as this text indicates, as well as numerous other texts, it is I who changes. I change. It is not merely that Christ is in me and I'm this empty pipe through which the power of God flows, but it's me who changes. Yes, the power comes of God. More on that later. But what we must understand is that the work that God is doing is to reform the image of Jesus in us so that we change, so that we want to do what is right, so that we put sin to death, so that we live the way that God wants us to live. He's changing you. Now there is some teaching out there that is simply saying all you do in this Christian life is get out of God's way. You're an empty pipe through which He flows. If you can just stay out of His way, His power will flow through you to accomplish His work. The biblical picture is rather that He flows through us with power, but as He does so, He's transforming not an empty pipe. He's transforming a person made in His image. We are to live for His glory, to be the image of Christ in this world. So sanctification is progressive, transformational conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is, then, secondly, an integral aspect of God's saving purposes. Some Christians hold the erroneous belief that sanctification, that growing in holiness, that conformity to the image of Jesus in the Christian walk is optional. You may think this. You may honestly think that although you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, progressive growth in holiness or sanctification is optional. And you usually probably are thinking then, eh, other people find it a lot easier than I do. It's really not for me. If this is what you believe, you should change your mind. I hope that you will. Notice in the following passages the organic relationship between God's purpose to save sinners and the ongoing sanctification of those sinners. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 reads, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, why did God choose us? That in order that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This is why God chose us. Now someone could say, well, that's talking about heaven. Well, indeed, we will be holy and blameless before Him in heaven, but this is the purpose for which He's chosen us. And isn't that process going on down here? I think indeed it is. In fact, chapter 2 and verse 10 clinches the idea. Chapter 2 and verse 10 of Ephesians where we read, "...for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works." which God prepared when? Beforehand, that we should walk in them. That is, God has saved us with the agenda that we would walk in righteousness. That's why He gives us life. Not only to deliver us from hell, which gloriously is part of salvation grace, but also that we would walk in these good works. He saved you for that reason. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Is that just in heaven? 
No, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, if all that means is that God has chosen us to give us life so that we would be zealous for good works in heaven, that's really not saying a whole lot. He chose us and gave us new life that we would be zealous for good works here. That He would transform us here to live righteously. God saves sinners in order to transform them. To argue that God saves some sinners but that they make no progress in sanctification is to draw a distinction that God never makes. God's assessment of the believer who does not grow in holiness, is God quiet on that? Not at all. Notice his answer, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, and it is troubling. I will warn you. At 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, what does God think about the person who is saved, quote-unquote, who doesn't ever grow? who never becomes like Christ in any way, shape, or form. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, to add one point of application. Now, this needs to be nuanced, and nuanced even within 1 John. John says you will sin. If anybody says that they're not a sinner, they're a liar. And they're a sinner then. They're a sinner. You will sin. But the point is, if you live in the bondage of sin just like an unbeliever, the reason is you're an unbeliever. If you live as if you're in the dungeon, it's because you're in the dungeon. Where God saves, He saves the soul not just for eternity, but now. To begin to live righteously. To begin to conform the parts of our body to the purposes that God has for us in Christ. So, if the prince in the dungeon comes to believe that his father is the king, he's right. But nothing really changes for him if he remains in the dungeon. It is not until he is liberated by his father that he is free. And once freed, it is the purpose of his father to redeem his son's life and to slowly transform him into the image of the prince that he is. Can you imagine in the story, the father saying, once he delivers his son and says, welcome home, son, and begins to take him back, says, okay, you're free to go now. I mean, all I want to do is get you out of the dungeon. It wouldn't make a very good story, would it? What's wrong with this guy? delivered his son from the dungeon and he doesn't care to clean him up. He doesn't care to bring him home. He doesn't care to teach him to be a prince. What kind of father is that? That's not our father. He's saved us. He's rescued us. He's given us life that he would transform us into the likeness of Christ. I say then, in warning, if you are here making profession of faith in Jesus Christ, then you would have to honestly say, as I look over my life, I really see no changes. I really am living pretty much the way that I did when I professed faith in Christ. Is that where you're at? Can you look back on your life and see any change, any development? Do you see conviction of sin? Do you see God working on certain areas of sin in your life? If you don't, you may be in the dungeon. There'd be good indication that you are. You need seriously to come to terms with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be that you're clinging to your sin and you need to leave it go and receive His saving grace. God's redemptive purposes are not meant to give you a ticket to heaven. Salvation doesn't deal just with the next life. God saves souls in order to restore the image of God in them, and God starts that project immediately upon conversion. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. Now God takes his time sometimes, doesn't he? And why is that? He takes his time because we take ours as well, certainly. Those who are justified will, however, realize transformational growth in their life. If we would chart this out, there is justification.
is where we come to saving faith in Christ and sanctification, dealing with it here in the sense of progressive sanctification. How does it pertain to my sin? And under the column of justification, I am legally guilty of sin and liable to its penalty. But in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus bears and suffers the legal penalty of my sin, and Jesus' righteousness is immediately and positionally imputed to me, positionally in the sense of status. I now become His child, right here in justification for time and eternity. It'll never be taken away if it's truly been given. But my sin and sanctification, spiritually blind and in bondage to sin, in my sin, but now Jesus breaks the power of sin's dominion over me, and Jesus' righteousness is progressively imparted. That word imparted can be misunderstood as if we earn it, would be a wrong way to say it, but it is indeed imparted as we make progress in righteousness. Progressive, transformational conformity to the image of Christ. An integral aspect of God's saving purposes. This is why He has saved us. And to complete it, let me just say, sanctification is a matter of both faith and spiritual warfare. We will make no progress in sanctification unless we walk by faith in God. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6, it is impossible to please God. You will do nothing apart from faith that is good. Without me, said Jesus in John 15.5, you can do nothing. We will not make one inch forward in holiness by trusting in our own goodness or depending on our own efforts, not a single inch. The only way forward in sanctification is in abject spiritual poverty, receiving the grace of God and trusting in Him to do in us what we can't do. Salvation is by faith alone, and sanctification is by faith alone. It is God who is at work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. But having said that, it is wrong to think that faith in God is ever displayed by sitting back and waiting for Him to do things. Back to the pipe illustration, that He will just flow through us and we just get out of the way and let things happen. The kind of faith that saves in conversion is the kind of faith that labors for sanctification. It labors in faith, in utter dependence upon God, but it labors. God changes us, and He uses us. In his classic text on holiness, R.C. Ryle quotes the maxim of the wisest general that ever lived in England. In time of war, it is the worst mistake to underrate your enemy and try to make a little war. This, I think, is one of our major problems as Christians. We're trying to make a little war with sin, as if it's a little enemy. It's not a little enemy. It's not a mere skirmish. This is an all-out battle. Where there is grace, says Ryle, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. Identify it in your mind. What is the sin or these sins with which you struggle? Is there a fight going on in your life in those areas? Are you battling? John Owen wrote in slight paraphrase that the conquest of sin cannot be done without the daily mortifying of sin. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and against every degree we grow. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. He who does not kill sin in his way takes no steps toward his journey's end. He who finds not opposition from it and who sets not himself in every particular to its mortification is at peace with it, not dying to it. And that's grave danger. We must wage war against the flesh. Maybe you're asking right now, what do I do? What do I do? If that war is not going on and it's not going on with some measure of success, we're a body of believers. We need to help each other. That's good and right and honoring to God for us to talk through those matters, to talk with someone that can help you learn to wage war against it. And in some degree, we all need one another. We need one another to carry on this battle. How many battles 
of great wars have been won by one person. Standing up to the enemy, we join together as soldiers of Christ to work with each other and help each other wage this battle. I hope we can always keep at rest within our assembly the shock factor when someone talks about a struggle with sin. We shouldn't be shocked by it. We should realize this is the real world. This is the world we're in. And where we're honest with that battle, we can help one another. Where we act like we've got it all together and there's no sin in our lives, we're playing the part of the fool. By the way, nobody really believes it, okay? (laughs) If you act like you have no sin, no one's buying it. We know we do. Are we fighting it? Are we going after it? Do we hate it? Do we want to put it to rest? If there's a sin in your heart right now that you honestly love, you are in a major, major battle. You've got to win this. You've got to take it on and you've got to fight it. Is that a lack of faith in God? No. It's the way faith works. To put it to rest, to make changes in your life, to battle it. Are we right about this? Are we sure? Does this sound like sanctification by works? I don't think it is at all. As the New Testament bears out quite clearly, just consider all these texts together. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. That speaks of a battle. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There, I have died to sin, but on another level, I am putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There are things Dan Miller likes to do that he shouldn't do, and there are things he doesn't like to do that he needs to do, and he's got to attack those things and put them to death. Remember the analogy of the voice over the wall. We've got to stop up our ears. We've got to move away from the wall. We can't listen to the voice that's coming over from the old realm. We've got to put it to death. Philippians 2 and verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It certainly doesn't sound like I'm a dead pipe. That God just will work through when He's ready to do so if I just stay out of the way. I'm to work out my salvation. That's not a lack of faith. That is an evidence of biblical faith. Ephesians 6.12 and following, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why are you doing that? Because there's going to be a war. So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You've got to stand to it. Take on the armor. Timothy, says Paul, wage a good warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. The author of Hebrews, in your struggle against sin. It's not a rebuke. It's an encouragement. In your struggle against sin. Now, let me just say, couple points of application. First of all, what we find an indication here is that this is a lifelong fight. What we find in the New Testament is not some idea that sanctification is a stage that you attain by some quantum leap. You have some great spiritual experience and you enter into this upper echelon in which you are sanctified. There's no indication of that. Probably the person that took us down that alley, worst of all, is John Wesley. For all the good that he did, this wasn't one of the areas where we laud him. But he claimed that it was possible in this life to gain a position of total sanctification. He hung this belief on the assumption that if God commands a thing, then we can do it. Now, that would seem to follow. If God's commanding you to do something, you have the ability to do it. So Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And John Wesley said, what are you running away from? Verse says, be perfect. We're supposed to be perfect. If God says to be perfect, we can be perfect. We can come to a place of total sanctification where we do not sin knowingly. I always thought it was interesting that he tagged on the knowingly part. <laughs> there was some reality in him at that point. We won't sin knowingly. I think what Wesley failed to understand in part is that God commands that we do all kinds of things we can't do. Because his standard doesn't change and doesn't adjust on the basis of our ability. It's right, he says it. 
whether we're going to do it or not. I think all parents ought to have this idea pretty firmly in view. You say to your children, there will be no whining. And you know it's not going to happen. In fact, you're going to probably participate in it a little bit now and then. But you do still tell them that, right? No whining. Even though you know they don't have the moral capacity to never whine for the rest of their lives. But we set the standard. This is the way that it is to be. We don't whine here. We don't sin is the standard that Jesus lays out. That doesn't mean that he thinks then that we can do it. He knows we can't. But he also knows that we will when we're in eternity. And as we're making progress there, he says, no sin. No sin. Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength at all times. That's the standard. Nevertheless, we fail. But there are no quantum leaps. This is a lifelong fight. And secondly, there are no quantum leaps out of this fight. We're not going to get through it somehow by doing this right thing, having this right experience. There are no leaps out of it. Thirdly, this fight is a faith in the provision of victory in Christ. Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, said, the whole art of war consists in getting at what is on the other side of the hill. I think there's some wisdom in that. The whole art of fighting sin is getting at what's on the other side of the hill. What's on the other side of the hill? Let's go to 1 John 3, 2. 1 John chapter 3 I'll read verse 1 as well. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. We're in a different realm. Different Father, different knowledge. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when He appears, Jesus, we shall be like Jesus because we shall see Jesus as He is. That's the other end of the hill. And the whole process of fighting through sin is to know that in the end we will become like Christ. Will that be a glorious day? No sin. Glorified fully sanctified. But now the fight is on. So the question resides for all of us, are you growing in holiness? Are you detecting in your life that God is at work putting to death the sins of the flesh? Now this takes time. Don't be discouraged. It may not happen overnight. It may not happen in a year. It may not happen in a decade. But can you look at various areas of your life and say, God has brought conviction of sin. He has not allowed me to get away from that conviction and He has slowly brought to death or is slowly bringing to death my interest in this passion or in failure of this responsibility. Can you see that in your life? God did not save us so that we would remain in filth. He saved us to clean us up, making us His children. And He expects that we change. Now there's some things in this world that are hard as we're rescued by our King. It's hard to learn how to read. and It's hard to learn how to wield a sword. and It's hard to learn etiquette to use our story. There's other things that are a lot easier. But in the process of it all, is God changing you? What are the roadblocks between you and holiness? All we can do is repent and turn and change and seek one another's help. I think they're convicting words intended for a slightly different context. I'll apply them to holiness from A.W. Tozer in that incredible Christian. He says, you may have as much as you insist upon having. When it comes to holiness, you can have as much as you insist on having. You will have as little as you are satisfied with. And you now have as much as you really want. 
I pray by God's grace that when we consider the wonder of His mercy, what He is doing to transform us into the likeness of Christ, how this is part of His whole plan, and how it is who we are in Christ, I pray, God, that we want more. That we want to grow to be more like Jesus. Young people, who's your hero? Honestly, who do you want to be like? I've had different answers for that question throughout my life, honestly. I won't name them here to embarrass myself unnecessarily, but there were certain athletes I wanted to be that man. Who do you want to be like? Adults, all of us. Who do you really want to be like? Maybe you've lost the desire to be like the movie star or the musician or the athlete or somebody that was your idol. But now, really, honestly, the idol that you want to be like is the one that you meet in the mirror every day. And there's some things you'd like to see more glory assigned to who you are, but it's really the image of yourself that is your idol. Do we want to be like Jesus Christ? Not to look like He did, not to do everything that He did, but to bear out His image and character. Is that truly at your heart's desire? That I am living a life that longs to be like Christ. Would people who know you say, yeah, I think so. I really do think. I see errors in their life, I see sins in their life, but I really think that that person does want to be like Christ. If you're not there, you need to get there fast and start the process of Christ-likeness. You can have as much as you insist upon having. You will have as little as you are satisfied with. You now have as much as you really want. May God lead each of us to want more, much more, for His glory and our joy. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank You for this endeavor in Your Word. While we refer to many things that are familiar, I pray that each of us would be deepened by what we have considered, and that we would go hard after Jesus Christ. May we walk worthy of You unto all pleasing. In His name we pray. Amen.